verses 3 through 8. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, and it reads this way. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, thank you, Naya, and good morning uh, to both of you. I'm uh, glad you're here. I feel like anytime you send an email out, uh, it's like, hey, we're going to speak about lust on Sunday. It's just kind of like, hey, it feels like a good Sunday to take a family vacation. It's kind of <laughs> but uh, we are continuing uh, our series on, on virtues and vices, and this morning's um, vice is, is lust. And so uh, I, I think that probably there's only one thing we can do, and that is to pray. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into that text. Our Father, God, we, we pray to you as, as our Father because your Son, our Savior, Jesus, told us to. We believe you are a good Father who made us, who loves us, desires the best for us. And when it comes to sex, we need a Father who is like you, willing to forgive, eager to heal, who redeems our lives and crowns us with your steadfast love. We need a Father who wants to satisfy with what is, is truly good. So we need it to be true that you are our Father God, and we pray that you would make it true for us. Now that we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to, to human sexuality, most people have the assumption that the church and our broader culture are in complete disagreement. But I don't think that's, that's right. I think there's actually one place that the church and our broader culture are actually on the, very, the same page. We are in complete agreement over, which is that, that both the church and those outside the church would say that our sexuality um, is, is central to who we are as human beings. That you can't really understand human beings without understanding uh, our own sexuality. And if both the culture and the church are right about this, and I think they are, if that's true, then that would mean um, our, our sex lives have the potential to greatly enhance or bring more value to our humanity, to give us a richer and more meaningful life. Or on the flip side, our sexuality would have the power to do us, do us great harm, to bring us to bring us shame, to bring us pain. And I think that's true when it comes to sexuality. It's, it's some of us, those are our deepest wounds. Some of us, those are our, our greatest joys. And I think it's worth asking why. Why is, is sex such a powerful thing? Why do our sexual desires out of control, which are typically called lust, why do those cause so much damage? They can end marriages. They can ruin childhood. Lead to wreckage in 
life? Why, why does lust bring so much damage? And on the flip side, why do sexual desires rightly expressed bring so much joy to us? I think those are questions worth reflecting on, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. And even though Christianity will give very different answers to those questions than our, our broader culture, I, I think we can all agree on sex is important. And it's worth thinking about and reflecting on because of its power in our, our lives. And so I want to do that this morning um, out of 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, three points. Um, sex is a good gift to be desired. Lust is desiring that gift too little. And thirdly, chastity is more hopeful than sex. So first, sex is it's a gift for us to desire. In our passage this morning, which, which Naya read for us a few minutes ago, it's, it's a letter that a church leader named Paul, he was a pastor, a church planner, wrote to a church in an ancient city called Thessalonica. And Paul had a central concern for them, especially with their sexuality. And I want to read the first two verses that Naya didn't, didn't read for us. They're not the main point of the passage, but it sets up why Paul is, is going to go here. So first, let's see Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you want to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now Paul's central concern here is that these, these Christians will abandon what Paul has taught them and communicated to them, and they will abandon that for something else. That they'll abandon specifically what the gospel has had to say about their sexuality, and they'll, they'll turn in that truth for what the culture is is pushing them towards. And there's two reasons why Paul doesn't want them to give up the gospel story around sexuality for the culture's story for sexuality. Two primary reasons, both of which I think are still relevant for us today. The first reason Paul doesn't want Christians to have a non-Christian view of sexuality is that in that day, the, the view of sexuality was very oppressive to women. So in, in that day, the typical man would be sleeping with three to four women at the same time. The man would have a wife, whose job was to, to provide them legitimate children, legitimate heir, a legitimate household, legitimate family. But a man would also have a mistress, someone who maybe would be his intellectual equal, who he would talk um, issues with, but they would also have a sexual relationship together. Thirdly, most men would have a concubine, someone who was solely uh, for his sexual pleasure. That was the only reason that, that he would have a relationship with him. And fourthly, uh, if you're a man who owned slaves, it was considered common practice, normal, and a man was completely free to have sexual relationships with his slave. He had, he had that power over them. So a man would be able to sleep with three to four women in that culture and be ultimately responsible to none of them. He got sex in each case, but he only had to offer a piece of himself, um, and really not much of himself, to women in order to have a sexual relationship um, with them. So sex was one of the many ways in which women in that day were oppressed by the male-dominated the male culture. So Paul is he's speaking to this directly, but it's actually it's a little bit hard to pick up in the English, and this is what Paul is getting at. Um, so in, in verses 3 and 4, Paul says, uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification, and you abstain from, from sexual immorality. In verse 4, this is where it gets a little confusing for us, because it's hard to translate into English. Um, Paul says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. This phrase, to, to, to control your own body, literally it's translated to take hold of your vessel. 
But there's two ways probably that, that this can be, there's two, two potential meanings to this. Um, one is that uh, Paul is speaking to men and saying to men, take hold of your vessel and control it in holiness and honor. I'll give, I'll, I won't go into any more detail. I think you know where I'm, where I'm hinting at with that. But that's what Paul is saying. That's one possibility. The other is that when Paul says um, you need to take hold of your vessel, um, this word vessel in the Hebrew uh, meant wife, and this word to take meant wife, in, uh, or to take a wife in, in, in the Hebrew. So Paul may be translating a Hebrew phrase, which literally means to take a wife. To take a wife, when you take a wife, Paul's saying, then take it with holiness and honor. And I think either one doesn't, uh, whether whichever tra- translation is right, it, it actually doesn't matter, because in both cases, what Paul is saying is you need, you need to treat your sexuality with a sense of control and, and a sense of holiness and honor. And Paul is speaking to men here and saying, brothers, we, we do not treat sex like our culture treats sex. We don't, think, we don't, we don't sleep with three or four women. We, we marry one woman, and we're devoted to her. We don't do that. We don't listen to the broader culture's view of sexuality. But he goes further than that, because then he says, you know, take hold of your vessel, right? Take, take your wife in holiness and in the word honor uh, there, it's, it's often used with respect to, uh, to kings, queens, emperors, honor the emperor. That's uh, Sue Rosebloom wrote that to, to mistreat another human being sexually is to mistreat another king or right? human beings are made in the image of God. So to, to take advantage of them sexually or to, to abuse them sexually is to abuse a king or a queen. Paul says when we don't do that, we honor other human beings through our sex, and the, the other is, is holiness, which is a word almost in reference to, to worship. Like this, there's a sense of, of, of reverence with respect to our sexuality. There, there's a sense almost this is unique, this is set apart, this is a different part to our lives, which we all acknowledge, right, whether you're a Christian or not. We all acknowledge there's something different about sexuality. Paul's saying, if that's true, treat it like And so that, that's the first reason Paul says, I don't want you to lose what the gospel has said about sexuality. For the broader culture. So if you do, you're going to press, you're going to press women. The other is that Paul, um, Paul is, is drawing on a history of, of Judaism, the Hebrew scriptures, um, that, that, that viewed sexuality primarily as, as a gift that was meant to bond two people together into one flesh. As so Christians, we believe the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis 1 and 2 tell us why sex exists in the first place. And the reason it exists is because God initially created one human being alone, Adam. And as God looked through all culture creation, he, he noticed Adam had no one to truly do life with, to truly have a friendship with, community with, no one to help him with the work God had given to him to multiply and to fill the earth. And so God creates Adam, um, a, a new human being, a different type of human being, a different gender, but a, a human being like Adam, but not just to help Adam like garden, or not just... To help Adam name the animals, or just not, not to help Adam uh, take care of creation or do his work, but also for Adam to know through sex, through intimacy. And God doesn't just create Eve for Adam um, so that, that they can have they can be friends, but so that they can have a sexual relationship together. That, they, that sex is a good gift, and it is God's idea. And sex is meant to be this out, outworking of this one flesh 
reality. So Adam, when, when God creates Eve, Adam does what kind of every cheesy guy does. Uh, and since then, he writes a little song, right? He gets, up, he gets out his guitar, writes one of his songs, and he sings with the song. We have this song in Scripture. It's the first love song, uh, Genesis 2. Adam writes of Eve, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of me. There's, I don't recognize there's one flesh reality that, that's new with, with this, this human being God has given to him. And Adam understands that this woman he's to be with, he's to be completely with. Emotionally, spiritually, relationally, physically, her body is created for him, his body was created for her to be one together. It's a sexual desire, this desire to be one with another human being. That, that's a good it's a good gift God has given to us. So that's the first reason that sex is created, is, is to, to bond to people, to one. There's a second, though, that, that's important, and that is sex is designed to create new, new human beings. Now, that's, not, that's not the only purpose for sex, but that's one of the implications of, of sex. And if that's, if that's true, Genesis 1 and 2 is correct, then, then sex is not just about moments in time. Sex literally has eternal implications. For a sexual act could result in the creation of a new human being, and human beings, according to the Bible, are live forever. Either, either in glory or in judgment. So sexuality, our sexuality, literally has eternal consequences. Can you, can you see why Paul, at this moment, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he pauses and he says, listen, I don't want you to lose what we have given to you. Your culture has a very different view of sexuality. It, it uses uh, sexuality to oppress women. It misunderstands the nature of the gift. Do not turn in the story that we told you about the gospel of its implications for your own sexuality. Turn it in for the culture. Don't do that. And that advice, I think, is it's good for us today. Because the first point is easy, right? We all agree sex is a good, a good thing. Um, I think broadly across the culture. But the, the problem where the disagreements begin Okay, what's, what's lust? And lust, ultimately, is desiring sex too, too little, but that's not a definition of, of lust. And so we, we worked hard as, as a teaching team to try to define what is lust? What is, what is bad sexual desire? Sexual desire inherently is a good thing. What is sexual desire as a bad thing? Here's how I, def I would define lust. Lust is, is any sexual desire that is on a one-way street. The lust is it's sinful sexual desire that removes the other person from consideration. Lust makes sex ultimately about, about you, yourself. So here's how Rebecca DeYoung defines lust in her devices. She says, lust pretends sex and pleasure are a party for one. Lust makes sexual pleasure all about me. Lust, sexual pleasure, is divorced from love and mutual self-giving. And when we lust, we certainly want nothing to do with giving life future commitments that it might be. Or as Joseph Peter put it, love or lust wants what's in it. Whereas true love desires a beloved person. And this is where our, our culture and the Christian view of sexuality begins to part ways. Because lust uh, in, in Christianity is defined as any sexual desire expressed outside the context of of marriage because you, you can't want another person without saying to them, relationally, financially, physically, spiritually, all of my 
my life is committed to you in this, in this new space of covenant marriage, and that's the space from which sexuality can be expressed. Any place that's not, that's not expressed, ultimately, you're not, you're not making a future commitment to that person. You're saying you're going to have this piece of me, but you're going to have the whole thing. I'm not committing myself to you beyond this moment. That, that, that's, according to the scriptures, is lust. And there's a lot of assumptions behind that. I'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending that, that case, but when Paul, Paul says, I want you to abstain from sexual immorality there, the Greek word used, porneia, um, if you go to, to any Greek um, New Testament, Greek dictionary, uh, which, which tend to not be written by more conservative theologians, you'll find the definition there includes any, any sexuality expressed outside the covenant of heterosexual marriage. That's the assumption running through all of the Bible, which I realize raises a lot of questions like, I can't get to today, so I'm, I'm going to assume that. But I do want to unpack why that's, that's the case a little bit. The, the, it, because any, any sexual desire expressed outside of marriage, ultimately I think is, is in some way harmful to others. Um, three ways I, I mean that. First, uh, take pornography. Pornography is ultimately the complete disregard for the sexuality of Person, or actually a complete disregard for the humanness of another person. It's truly sexual desire on a one-way street. You're using another person for only one thing, their, their sex, their, their sexuality, their physical looks. And you've reduced their humanity down into to one thing, which we human beings were not one thing. We're not only our sexuality. The pornography, it's, it's harmful. It's, it, it disregards the other. But also, as, as I mentioned a second ago, it's that's also true of any sex outside of marriage, because to, to have sex outside of marriage is to say, I want to have sex with you, but I'm not willing to financially commit to you. I'm not willing to commit to your financial security or, or safety. I just want you for, for sex. It's to say, I want it, but I don't want you as, as a person. Or, or to say, I, listen, I want to have sex for you, but with you, but I'm not ready to commit my, my life, uh, to promise my life to you until death do us part. It's that sexual desire on a one-way street. Listen, I want, I want you to give me sex, but I'm not going to give you a thing. But the real trouble with, with the Christian view of sexuality is actually, you, even when you get married, all the problems aren't solved. Because you can still lust from within marriage. Because if lust and sexual desire are the one way street, you can do that in marriage as well. Or even though you've committed to the person, um, your life and your finances and your relational commitments and your entire self, you can still use your spouse in a way that that you're only you're only receiving from them their sexuality. You're, you're only it's a one way street. You're not it's not mutual self giving through your your sexuality. It's it's a selfish. It's still a selfish act. But the Christian tradition actually it's, it's worse than most people think it is because you can't get rid of this idea that, that, that any sex on a, a one way street is, is sinful and wrong. And even when you get married, there's still that can still happen. And so before I continue further, I have to. I want to respond to probably what's the most primary objection to the Christian view of sexuality, which is, listen, what, what two consenting adults do together, what they agree to do together, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else, um, why, why would that be wrong, right? Two consenting adults um, having sex together, that doesn't harm anyone else. So why, why is the Christian tradition so strict um, here? And I want to respond, because I think that's a compelling objection, but also because I think for those of you in this room who struggle with lust, who struggle with sexual desire on one way street, I think you have to, under, before you can start to really fight that, I think you have to understand the harm with which uh, lust does to the broader culture, to those around you. And we often think sexuality is a very private matter, but 
it's actually, it's not. It has far-reaching consequences in to the culture. So, I mean, again, going back to, to pornography as an example, but, uh, Naomi Wolf, uh, in her argue, uh, article in the Porn Myth in New York Magazine, it's not a Christian, not a Christian organization, a Christian article, makes the case that uh, pornography is incredibly harmful, not just to yourself, but to the broader culture. Because first, uh, pornography desensitizes those who watch it to sexual intercourse with another human being, with another person. It makes sex with a real person more difficult. Study after study has shown this to be true. That's one, but the other, she, she has this kind of throwaway quote in, in the line, which really grabbed, in the article, which grabbed me and, and which was devastating to me. But she has this, this line, she says, pornography uh, means that men begin to think real naked women are just bad porn. That her point is that just, just the existence of pornography and the ease with which naked women are available to, to view in our culture. That's degrading to, to women, just by, by, by itself, just existing, because it makes real women into just bad porn. So, listen, pornography is deeply harmful to our it's, it's a bad thing. It, it, it does damage. Secondly, though, and, and this is maybe a harder case to make, um, and I don't have as much time to make it, but I would say, ultimately, our culture of, of sex of being disconnected from marriage and, and, and sex outside of marriage not being a big deal, I think that's ultimately to our broader culture as, as well. So we're going to take a look in a second from a, a clip from the Austin Institute, which is out of the University of Texas. And what they did was trying to understand how our current sexual practices are, are affecting our, our current culture. And it was, it's a nine-minute video. I think you should look it up and watch the whole thing. But here's a main clip. Women have something of value that men want. Badly. Something men are actually willing to sacrifice for. So how much does sex cost for men? It might cost them nothing but a few drinks and compliments. Or a month of dates and respectful attention. Or all the way up to a lifetime promise to share all of his affections, wealth, and earnings with her exclusively. The price varies widely. But if women are the gatekeepers, why don't very many women charge more, so to speak? Because pricing is not entirely up to women. The market value of sex is part of a social system of exchange, an economy, if you will, where men and women learn from each other. And from others. What they ought to expect from each other sexually. So sex is not entirely a private matter between two consenting adults. Think of it as basic. Supply and demand. When supplies are high, prices drop since people won't pay more for something that's easy to find. But if it's hard to find, people will pay a premium. And the same rings true with sex. Men know that sex is cheap these days, if they know where to look. It's a, it's a fascinating broader um, video, because I was watching that, I was reminded of a Vanity Fair article I read um, about a year ago, where they were exploring the effects of, of dating in our current culture, and one of the things, there were two things that stuck me in the article. One was men openly saying, um, listen, I, I, I can get sex with no commitment. I don't have to give anything uh, to females that's so available to me. And secondly, uh, were the stories of women who were, were lamenting and, um, and broken over the reality of our current culture. And so it, as the, the video shows, it said sex is cheap and available everywhere, which it is. Through pornography, I mean, we, we're a culture that sells sex, and we sell deodorant, the sex, that, 
I mean, it's sort of funny at first, but it's like, that's actually kind of weird when you think about that. But sex is so available to us, it's, it's driven down, um, this is sort of the cross way of putting it, but it's, it's driven down the cost. And ultimately, I would say we're not too far away from 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul looked at the church and said, listen, we're not going to oppress women with our use of sexuality. Um, we may be there. We may be as bad, if not worse, than where, where they were. So Paul says to Christians, listen, we, we, don't, we don't treat sex. He says specifically, we don't we don't treat sexuality with with passions of lust, like those who do not uh, who do not who are not Christians do. Instead, we treat sexuality in love. And those two words are important to, to contrast. The passion of, of lust, it's a Greek word that just means um, literally it's a super desire. And so on the one hand, Paul's saying, listen, you can treat sex with sort of a super desire, and you'll only have sex out of an out of an expression of your own personal Desires and what it does ultimately is it, it is it is harmful to those around. It's not expressed in the context of marriage. Or Paul says you will approach sex with honor. You'll have sex in a way that builds others up. It's a mutual self-giving that gives you of yourself completely to them. That pays a high price to get to get sexuality to get sex because that is such a beautiful and important gift God has given to us. The lust it's, it's any it's any sexual desire on a one-way street. Paul says, we don't, the gospel says we don't have to treat sex like that. We don't treat sex like that in any one. So, so for 2,000 years, the church has thought of a contrasting virtue to the vice of lust, which is, is chastity. And I say chastity is more hopeful than it sounds, because most people think chastity is, is a death sentence. It's a, you can't have a meaningful life. Which, listen, I mean, if sex is a really good gift from God, so there is a sense in which Chastity is saying no to something that's good that God has, has given. Um, yet it's a virtue. And it's a virtue, actually, all of us, whether we're married or not, are called to practice. And I think what makes it so difficult is it's a very difficult virtue to practice. Now, arguably, uh, the best, uh, maybe the best Christian author and Christian theologian uh, of all time in history, uh, Augustine, um, he, he lived about 300 to 480. He wrote at length about his own struggle with lust and sexual sin, and he was actually, he was considered to be such a good pastor that people in, in the town of Hippo, literally, they, they kidnapped him, they forced him into the church, and they, they consecrated him their bishop by force. Um, he was such a good man. Now, this is a little bit more of a normal practice than today, uh, back then, but they, they saw him to be such a good man that they, they, they made him their bishop, like forcefully made him their bishop, and yet, when he wrote his spiritual autobiography, Confessions, um, one, he wrote a link about his struggle with sexual sin. And two, he, he wrote this famous prayer. He said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And it, it, listen, if he, if he struggled with this, so will we. And he found a way out to freedom and to life. The reality is this is a hard, this is such a good thing God has given to us. It is hard for us to put it back in this right place. And yet, I, as I said, whether you are, are married, whether you are single, whether you are a student, whether you are, are um, in retirement age, we are all called to cultivate this virtue of chastity. Chastity is not ultimately about not having sex. It's not ultimately about having the right internet filters, although those, those things are important. But chastity was always considered a, a virtue with a positive um, a, a workflow. It wasn't, it wasn't just defined by what you didn't do. It was defined by what you did do. So there's four things I want to say about chastity this morning sort of define it out for us, and hopefully give it, give it a little bit of a reframing of what chastity is and means. The 
first, chastity, it's ultimately about me. The Laura Leonard in her book, Real Sex, who wrote this at the time she was, um, she was a single person. She said, um, chastity is doing sex in the body of Christ. Doing sex in a way that fits the body of Christ. It keeps you grounded and bounded in community. Which means absence if you're not married, and fidelity if you are. And I think this is, this is unpacking what Paul gets at in, in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Speaking of a church community here, he's saying, This is the will of God. If you as a church community, you are abstaining from sexual immorality. This is your sanctification. And that, sanctification is a churchy word, um, and it's a churchy word that literally it, it means becoming holy. So think of it like this, when you, when you become, all of us, when we become Christians, we have lots of vice within us, right? We're, we're born as broken, um, uh, fallen people. We have things in us that are, 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 are not right. We're greedy, right? We're angry. We've worked through the vice list over the course of the last several weeks. We have lust. So Paul, when he says your sanctification, what, what he's referring to a process Christians believe in, which is you start here when you're born as, as, as a Christian or when you're born again. And you're slowly becoming more and more holy. You're becoming more and more like Christ the older you get. That's a process. And Paul's saying, you as a church, you're committed to this, this process of becoming holy. So even though the broader culture has one view of sexuality, that's not the life you're committed to as, as a community. So, so to do chastity well, you have to be in a community of people committed to that. Committed to a different story of sexuality than the broader culture. So first, chastity is for the community. But secondly, sort of out of that, is that chastity is for the other. It's an others-focused life. The earlier I said, listen, lust is, is sexual desire on a one-way street. And yet I, I recognize the complexity of defining and understanding what that is, the, the, the uh, complexity of defining out what is like healthy, good sexual desire, what's just finding another person attractive versus like what's sexual desire on a one-way street, what's, what's actually lust. And I think one of the ways to make that distinction uh, less important or less uh, uh, Less confusing is to have a life that's outwardly devoted to the good of other people. That's ultimately what chastity is about, is using your life for the good of others. And so as Rebecca DeYoung is reflecting on, you know, what's the question to ask around chastity? It's not, you know, it's not what's lust and what's 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 good sexual desire. It's not what when have I gone too far and what's the line I can't cross. The, the right questions to ask to cultivate the virtue of chastity are these. How can my life, my thoughts, my choices, my emotional responses, my conversation, my behavior, make me a person who is best prepared to give and to receive love in relationship with others. Because lust is, is, is a sexual desire on a one-way street, the best way to defeat lustful patterns in your heart is to become a person whose, whose entire life is a two-way street, where you're both making your life about giving love to others and also about receiving love from others. Others. How can you do that? How can you receive? How can you, you give? Chastity is about the community. It's about a life directed towards the other, not just not just on in, in, in through sex and marriage, but also just broadly in life. How can you, how can you be a life of service towards others? And thirdly, chastity it, it celebrates confession. And the reality is, you're not you're not going to overcome lust in your life until you confess that sin to others. And so. Probably the best way to, to overcome lust in your life is to have really good friendships. People whom you can trust to, to, to confess to, as well as who will receive you 
will pray for you, will forgive you, who will, will encourage you. It's not a silver bullet. There's lots of unhealthy ways to just practices, especially over the last 10, 15, 20 years. But the best way to, to live a life of chastity is to live a life of openness. Larry Osborne has a phrase that we use around here called glass house. There's nothing, there's nothing hidden in your, your life. Chastity celebrates confession. And fourthly, uh, and most importantly, chastity, it, it receives the right identity. There's this word that, that Paul uses three times in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. Um, I just talked about it a second ago. It's translated sanctification in verse 3, but it's the same word that appears as holiness in Verse 4 and 7, three times. And again, this is a churchy word like sanctification. It's like, what is holiness? What does it actually mean? Um, and, and here's my favorite way of describing this. That, um, in the Hebrew uh, scriptures, when they were making a temple, um, there's lots of things that go in a temple that don't seem particularly religious. Like, we have lots of things in this room that don't seem particularly uh, religious, like coffee urns and, and tables and chairs. And so, in the Hebrew scriptures, when they, when they were building the temple, and they were going to put a, ta- a chair in the temple, Right, they would take a, an ordinary chair and they put it in the temple, and once it was in the temple, it was holy. Or they, they did lots of sacrifices. They had to have tongs, right? So they, maybe they went to some guy's grill and grabbed the tongs off the grill and put it in the temple. But once they were in the temple, they were holy tongs. <laughs> they had tables that were called holy tables, chairs, tongs, all kinds of lamps were called holy. Which we would look at and say, well, like, a lamp isn't holy. Like a lamp just gives light. Like it's just a physical, inanimate object. You can't really refer to a lamp as a holy thing, yet they did. It's set apart. It's different. Because, because of where it's located, it's not a normal lamp. It's a holy lamp. And I raise the question, well, uh, Paul is saying here, and can we be, as human beings, holy? Because if there's one thing that maybe would say, make us say no to there's one area that we carry a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt. It's our sexuality. This might be the one thing we say, I, I am not whole. I'm not different. I'm not set apart. I'm not distinct. Which is why I find it interesting that in two places Paul spends most of his time talking about sex, uh, here in 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about holiness. Because what holiness is, is, is you and I, we're not holy. Right? We're, not, we're not actually holy um, as we are as human beings. But, but God does something in salvation for us. And, and Paul says it in verse 7, First Thessalonians 4. He says, after he just says, listen, I don't want you to trade the gospel story of sexuality into the culture's view of sexuality. He says, he says this to these Christians. He says, for God has not called us for impurity. But in holiness. He says God has called us in holiness. And what that is, Paul is, is picking up an idea that's all over the New Testament. That you and I, we are, the moment you become a Christian, you are holy. And even though I just said a second ago, like, we're in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. We're in the process of becoming holy. That's true. You're becoming more like Christ if you follow him. But you are already Holy, it's the word we actually get saints from. You are already a saint. Not because you are a saint. Or not because you are holy, but because what God does in salvation is he grabs you, ordinary person. You're no different from anybody else. You're the same. You're, you're, you're tongs, right? You're, you're a chair. You're a lamp. And God picks you up and he, he puts you into his family and his possession. And 
now you're full. Not because of anything you've done, not because you're different or you're better, or you're, you, you've, you've treated sexuality good while everyone else hasn't. No, he just grabs you and says, now you're old. Even though you're not. Even though we're not. And Paul is saying, listen, your identity is Christian. You're holy. This is why in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, no, you can't just do anything with your body. You can't just say anything. You just live however you want. You've been pulled out of an ordinary life, and you've been placed in the presence of God as he is. You are holy. That's our identity. And the reason that that's our identity is, again, it's, it's not because of anything we've done. It's because Jesus was removed from the place of, of holiness, right? The right hand of the Father, from heaven itself. He was removed from, from the place we get to live now, and he was put in the place of shame, the cross, where he was, was belittled, was ridiculed, was humiliated. He was put in the place that our sexuality makes us feel so much of the time so that we could live and be and dwell, be holy where Jesus is. That's the gospel. And I realize you hear that, and again, what we say, well, hold on, chastity, it means, it means you have to be alone, or it means you can't have, um, if you're not married, or if you're single, you can't have uh, sexual fulfillment. And, and that's why it's not just that you have to receive the right identity as, as, as holy, as, as, as someone God has saved, set apart, but it's also, listen, when Jesus talked about salvation, when he talked about what's to come, the new heavens and earth, he used one metaphor more than any other, and that is, he used the metaphor of heaven to so you and I, listen, sexual fulfillment was never meant to stop in itself. It was always meant to, to point beyond itself to the community, to the intimacy with which we would know God and one another in new heavens and new earth and new creation. That's why I don't accept the idea that, that a life of celibacy in this life is a life that is, is condemned to aloneness or, or a lesser life. Because one, that's the life Jesus lived, and I think he lived a beautiful life that any human being ever, he ever lived. And he was chased. He did not enter into sexual relationships with anyone. But more than that, for you and I, we have a promise of an intimacy, of a relationship, of a marriage. It will far outpace anything you and I experience in this life. And so if, you, if you're a Christian this morning, you are already whole. You need not carry any shame. Jesus died for you so that God can grab you out of your ordinary life and make you peace. So if you carry shame with respect to, to sexuality, Jesus took that from you on the cross. You need not carry it, and you need not live in sexual sin anymore. You're holy. Confess. Live for others. Chase down chastity. And if you're not a Christian, this, this is the story that's offered to us every, every week. Jesus offers it to you. He offers you his holiness in place of your own sin. It's the gospel. That's what Paul is imploring these testimonies. Don't, don't read that story. God, we thank you that you, you are not just making us holy, you call us holy. So as we enter into your presence to sing, as we, as we enter into your presence now through prayer, God, we don't enter in as people who, who need to carry the shame of sin with us, we need to carry the hurts of the past with us. God, we can enter in as people. You've given us a new life in Christ. Would you help us to believe that? Would you, would you root that identity in us so that lust will lose its glory for us? So that we can see the damage done. We live sexual desire among the 
help us to see a life that can be sexuality and good. Mother, would you make us a chaste congregation? God, not a congregation that, that doesn't understand your goodness, it doesn't express uh, sexual desire in a good way, but you, would you make us a chaste congregation so that we are giving and receiving love to one another in your culture? Help us. God, we need so much more.